Luke chapter 24. In verse 33. Luke 24, 33. Wednesday night we studied through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, finishing out chapter 24, the resurrection of Jesus. And this comes on the, on the heels of that great visitation by Jesus to the two men who are walking on the road to Emmaus. Seven mile journey outside of Jerusalem. And as they walked, they were talking about what had taken place, about the crucifixion, and about the fact that there was now a buzz that perhaps Jesus had resurrected, but they hadn't seen or heard any more, and they were confused about it, talking about these things. The Bible tells us as they walked along, Jesus showed up, joined the conversation. They didn't know it was Him. It's a beautiful story. You need to read it. If you weren't here Wednesday night, check it out. He starts talking with them and asking them what's going on and allowing them time to develop in their own faith. Well, finally, he goes all the way to Emmaus with them. They invite him to stay. He comes in, breaks bread. They recognize him and he vanishes from their sight. They realize they've seen the Lord and so they hot-foot it back to Jerusalem, seven miles back, to meet with the apostles and to tell them what had taken place. And that's where we pick up in verse 33. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. That's the text for this morning. Let's pray. Father, bless this time, Lord. And I especially ask, Lord, because we're taking more of a topical approach this morning, that You will guide these words with biblical truth. And that You will reveal to us Your intentions, Father. And that we won't get off track in some kind of idea of of man, but we'll stay grounded in Your Word. And I pray You'll bless this study and open our, our hearts and our minds to understanding as You would have us understand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why do we call our leaders here at the Bridge Fellowship shepherds? Why shepherds? What's the deal with that? I've been asked that question plenty of times over the years. We actually didn't even start with that title. The first two guys who served in leadership along with me were elders. Mike Freeman and Jeff D'Angelo were simply two elders. I I asked to, uh, to lead with me right out of the gate. And over the years, we've settled on this term shepherd, and so you'll hear us use the word shepherd probably more than any other word to describe our leaders here in the fellowship. Why? There are plenty of roles, and we need to understand that. Lots of roles, unique giftings in the body of Christ. You can study the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans chapter 12. Check those out and think about them because the gifts are for everybody in the body. The Lord has has abilities and equippings that He gives. He has a number of callings that are specifically for the role of equipping His churches, His saints. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 gets into all of those as well. But there are only two specific, if you want to call them offices in the church. Just two that the Scriptures describe. The first one is that of servants. The word used, you've heard it before, deacon. Diakonos is the Greek word. It simply means servants. And you might say, well, do we have deacons at the bridge? And I say, yeah, all over the place. You might say, when do they meet? And I would say, whenever they want to. You might say, no, no, when do they have officially scheduled meetings as the board of deacons? And I would say, why should they? 
What's the point of that? Now I know, and I grew up in a church that had deacons and had a deacon board and had a chairman of the deacons, and they were a pain in the neck to the elders, and the elders weren't, you know, they just power struggles and all that stuff. We have deacons at the bridge. We're just not in for the title. It's just if you're serving, if you're in ministry, you're a deacon. Phoebe was a diakonos, a deaconess. And so there's no argument over the male-female role here. It's just serve, just serve. That, honestly, is a calling of every single person who follows Jesus. Called to be a diakonos, a servant. Called to ministry. One to another, ministering to the world around us. So servants is one. There's another role that I really want to get into and talk about today, and that is the role of leaders. Leaders. The Bible gives us three words that describe one and the same role, and this is where the church, over 2,000 years, has kind of expanded and, and given different meaning to these different words, but they are one and the same. But there are three words to describe leaders within the church. The first one is elder. Presbyteros. Presbyteros, where the word Presbyterian comes from. It's a good biblical word. It's a Greek word simply meaning manager. We have the word overseer, which is the Greek word episkopos. It's where the the denomination Episcopalians get their name, episkopos. It simply means bishop or overseer. And right there, you've already got two different ways that churches govern. You have elder-led, elder-driven churches where you have a board of elders and they hire in pastors, uh, they hire in ministers, but they oversee it and the authority rests with, with the group. Elder, overseer, presbyteros, episkopos, and we have a third word, and it's the word poimen, P-O-I-M-E-N, if you're jotting it down, poimen in the Greek, and it's where we get our word pastor. It means shepherd, caregiver. It means one that, that cares for the flock of God, that walks among, moves among the, the people of God. And what's interesting about these three words, elder, overseer, shepherd, presbyteros, episkopos, poimen, is all three of these words, biblically speaking, describe one and the same leader. Not three different leaders. The Bible doesn't call out that you have bishops who oversee, you know, then your elders who oversee your pastors. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is that an elder, an overseer, and a shepherd is one and the same guy. And you can have a group of them. Paul tells Timothy, as the lead shepherd of of his church, gather around you. There at Ephesus, gather around other leaders. Well, how do you where do you get this idea they're all one and the same? Both Paul and Peter use the words interchangeably for church leaders. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, we're told that from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, Presbyteros, the elders of the church. The rest of that chapter, he's talking to these elders, and in verse 28 he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, bishops, to shepherd, poimen, pastor, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, elders, overseers, shepherds, all used interchangeably by Paul. Same, same group of guys. Peter will later do the same thing, as we'll see in a few minutes. Elders... Bishops, pastors, it's not a hierarchy of power or position. They are three similes for the same role. Now I find it interesting in Christianity, we have Presbyterians, and we've got Episcopalians. Why don't we have Poimenarians? We don't have a Poimenarian church. We have Pomeranians. 
That's barking up the wrong tree. Come on, don't dog me about this stuff. We should pause and think this through. Why of all of these names do we call our leaders here at the bridge shepherds? Why did we land on shepherds as the focal point, as the main, if you want to call it a title, and and you know, honestly, I don't like titles. I don't. Niccolo, Charlene, I still struggle with the fact that you call me pasta. A little meat sauce on the side, perhaps that would work. But I don't like titles. I don't think we're called to titles. We're called to serve and to love each other, right? To submit one to another. So why shepherds? A few weeks back, there was a group of us who were privileged to stand in a beautiful place, a quiet slope on the outskirts of Bethlehem, there in Israel. And standing there, we could look across rocky Judean hills, north toward Jerusalem. It was a quiet day, it was cool, but the sun was out, sky was clear, which was a rarity on this previous trip. And... It was just, it was really special to be there. There were caves behind us where animals were kept in Jesus' day, more likely than not where Jesus was born, in a cave. So as we stood there in the shepherd's fields, they're called. What struck me, and I I can see it vividly right now, standing there looking across ancient fields that converge on advanced high rises. It's weird. The slopes of the archaic, meaning the state of the art. We're in a place where the distant past was face to face with the domineering present. Anyone else tired of the domineering present? (laughs) All of the technology. I cannot keep up. Hannah was talking to Josiah the other day on the phone, and and she shared this with me later, that uh, she mentioned to him the song Like an Avalanche that we just sang this morning. Brand new song for me. And she said, hey, Josiah, have you heard that song, Like an Avalanche? And he said, oh, honey, that's been out for a while. (laughs) And I don't remember exactly what you said, Hannah, but it was something to the effect of, yeah, well, my dad's out of it anyway. (laughs) Am I right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Because my daughter's cutting edge. She's state of the art. I am slopes of the archaic. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. I'm finding myself very comfortable being old flock. You know? It's 2014, and I recognize that the word shepherd is a first century term in a 21st century world. But I think it's a good one. I like the I, I can still imagine, as Luke wrote, staying out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Luke 2, verse 8. I can still see the shepherds there. And there's something about shepherds that takes us to a different place that literally rips us out of the high-tech world in which we live and it transcends it transcends all of this edginess of our society and reminds us of the simplicity of faith. Really, it reminds us of the humility of faith. There was no more humble role in the world than shepherd in Jesus' day. And so to be a shepherd, I like the term. I like the designation. And by the way, let me just encourage you gentlemen out here that uh, being a shepherd is not the highest aspiration in the church. You know what the highest aspiration in following Jesus is? Servant. I am among you, he said, as one who serves. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You serve. You want to be glorious? You become humble. 
You be like Jesus. Well, the Lord, interestingly, has always called His leaders out of the fields. His prophets, His kings, He he drew out of the fields. Moses spent 40 years shepherding in Midian. I believe he was an apprentice. An apprentice deliverer, if you will. Spending all that time shepherding sheep so that he could learn how to care, especially for those who couldn't care for themselves, so that he can then be put into the deliverance of Israel and care for those who had trouble caring for themselves. A shepherd leader. Elisha. Elisha was out shepherding his flock when Elijah the prophet came along and put his mantle on his shoulders and said, you're going you're gonna to now take over. And he's like with his shepherd's staff and walking around. By the way, if you told a first century shepherd you'd like him to meet your church staff, he'd have a totally different picture. And then David... David comes along, and Psalm 78, verse 7, it says, He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. It's a great term for a leader. It's a humble term that keeps leadership, I believe, in the right place because you cannot lead unless you have first been led. And you cannot shepherd unless you yourself have been and are being shepherded. That's an irony about shepherding in the church is shepherds are sheep. You know, if you're sitting there going, well, if the leaders are shepherds, that makes me a sheep. And I don't like that. Well, I'm a sheep too. In fact, I approached this whole thing a little sheepishly this morning. Sorry, it's just, I can't help it. And I don't want to pull the wool over your eyes. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why was David chosen to be king over all Israel? And by the way, Israel's greatest king until Jesus comes along. Why David? Because he had a shepherd's heart. And because even as he ruled as king, he recognized the Lord is my shepherd. He's my leader. I am under His authority. And it was Jesus who said in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Which is why I have a problem with hirelings in the church. I don't like the idea of going out and finding a professional somewhere and bringing them in to do a job as a professional pastor because you know what? The heart is not for the sheep. And I don't mean to judge guys who are, who are in ministry or the way other churches do it. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that we don't need hired hands in the body of Christ. We don't need disengaged boards. You know, that's, that's part of the problem with the term elders. After a while, it starts to make you feel, you know, a little above. I'm one of the elders. You know, we meet. We talk about important things like church carpet. (laughs) Eternal issues like studs and buildings. We are studs and buildings. Yeah, you know, I don't know. (laughs) Shepherds. Shepherds. 
We need shepherds who care for the flock, shepherds who are in and among the flock, shepherds who smell like sheep because they themselves are sheep, and they understand that we are all beneath one chief shepherd, Jesus himself. So that's why, but I want to go a little further with you on this this morning. If you're wondering why we're still in Luke and and what this interesting little passage really has to do with all of this, I want you to think about Peter as an example of a shepherd and how he got there. Because Peter wasn't always there. You know Peter started out as a fisherman. He is the fisherman who became a shepherd. But how did that take place? Interesting in Luke, as we have finished out this book, and we've studied through it all now, and, and we've watched, we've really focused in on Jesus, but I want you to focus on Peter, because if this book, if the Gospel doesn't affect you personally like it affected Peter, then we've missed the Gospel of Luke. This is a very personal thing. And it should impact us. So look at Peter as it impacted him walking with Jesus, being with Jesus. His name, Simon Peter. Shimon in the Hebrew, which means desert or sand, like sand that shifts and is unstable. Peter, from the word Petros in the Greek, meaning little stone. You know, a piece of the rock. (laughs) Rocky. So his name is Sandy Pebble. (laughs) That's Peter's name, Sandy Pebble. And over the last few weeks, we have seen him in both ways. In the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Peter sandy and shifting and and unfaithful. And we've seen him rocky, standing up for Jesus, doing good stuff, called to be an apostle, trained by Jesus, sent out on missions by Jesus, and even declares Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16. There are times when Peter was a little rock. Good job, Peter. Way to hold fast. And other times when, you know, he was sandy. I don't know him. I am not one of them. No, I I deny being one of Jesus' guys three times. We see Peter in both places. And we begin to understand that all the while, Jesus was not grooming Peter to be a rock star. He was grooming Peter to be a shepherd. But you know when that really starts to come out? In the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. After Peter sees Him in the resurrection. And it's really interesting to me how this starts to play out. There are just three times mentioned in the Bible that Peter saw Jesus. He may have seen Jesus more than this. But we know of three times that Jesus had personal interaction with Peter from the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time of Jesus' ascension. In that 40-day period, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it was 40 days, in that period of time, there were three interactions Scripture talks about. And I want to look at them and consider Peter as a shepherd, maybe a shepherd being transformed. Three transformative moments. And the first transformative moment is Peter was found. Peter was found. Matthew 16, verse 7, the angel said to the women, Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Resurrection morning. The angel tells the women, Hey, go, tell the apostles to head to Galilee. We're going to meet up there. Jesus will see them there. Oh, by the way, and tell Peter. And I always thought that was so kind of the Lord. To single out Peter and to tell him, Make sure Peter knows. Make sure you say this to Peter directly. Because you know, Peter had had a bad weekend. Started out by denying his Lord and Savior, his friend. In those denials, don't miss the fact that Peter loved Jesus like a brother. 
followed him for three years, cared deeply for him, could not believe what was taking place before his eyes and the beatings and the trials and ultimately the crucifixion. The denials of Jesus wasn't a denial of how Peter felt about Jesus. It was a fear-based thing that can happen so easily to us. But Peter had gone through that. And then all weekend long, Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. And the last thing Jesus heard me say was, I don't know Him. Bad weekend. And so for the angels to tell the women, make sure Peter hears this, is really comforting and encouraging. But Jesus did more than that. He didn't just send a message. He showed up. And that's what we see in Luke 24.33 when the two men from Emmaus got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Past tense. We know that right after this, Jesus is going to show up there in the room among them and Peter will see him. Perhaps you heard me mention last week that I imagine Peter kind of shuffling to the back of the room seeing Jesus. Uh-uh. He'd already seen Him. That's, that blew me away. I'm like, what? I thought He was just there in the evening with the guys. No. Jesus presented Himself to Peter at some point during the day. We don't know when. As a matter of fact, we have no other information other than Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15... That he appeared first to Peter and then to the twelve. And I I read that and I just went, why don't we have more in Scripture about that? I mean, isn't that important? You know, the first Pope. (laughs) I mean, this whole thing could mess up the entire papal system. If we don't understand, and I'm being a little facetious, but gang... Sometime on Resurrection Sunday, between Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus, the Bible tells us she saw Him in the morning, and then the apostles, the two men on the road to Emmaus, late afternoon and early evening, saw Jesus. And the apostles that evening then would see Jesus without Thomas, but the rest of them there. In the middle of all that, sometime during the day, Jesus showed up to Peter. First transformative moment, Peter was found. We again know nothing about this conversation. We don't know how they interacted, what was said between them. The point is, Jesus went and found Peter. Wow! How personal does it get when the resurrected Lord seeks you out and makes things right? Gang, any leader in the church must first be found by Jesus. You gotta be found by Jesus. And I believe in this wholeheartedly that Jesus does the calling, that Jesus invites into leadership. I've had to learn this over the years. There have been times where I have wanted to call or I have thought that someone would be great for this, and I've been wrong. When Jesus does the calling, what you end up with is guys who may not even know why they're called, they just know they are. You end up with leaders who are not sure of themselves, but they're sure of Him. And that's a good thing. Jesus does the calling. Peter was found. Second transformative moment, Peter was filled. Peter was filled. And I am not talking about Pentecost because that was ten days after the ascension. After Peter was found, in that 40-day period, Peter was filled. In fact, it was that same day. On Resurrection Sunday, he was filled. Turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. They're still in that room. 
the apostles gathered together. Jesus appears to them. He shows up. In John chapter 20, verse 19. Pick it up right there. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when He had said this, He showed them both His hands and His side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now Luke tells us He even had a meal with them at that point. You have some broiled fish. The King James has some honeycomb. You have something I can eat. Because Jesus was showing them clearly, obviously, this is not an apparition. It's not a heavenly hologram. This was Jesus in the flesh. Full bodily resurrection. Mind, spirit, and body. Jesus was resurrected. And that's important theology, by the way. Very important. Because Jesus will always and forever be absolutely unique. He is the only God-man. The only one who is fully God, fully man. And still is, by the way. Fully God, fully man. And the Bible goes to great lengths to point that out. So Jesus is with them and He's, he's eaten and He said peace to them. And then note this, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace with you. As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, get this. He is the consummate rabbi, Jesus the teacher. And He goes... And breathes on them. And says, I'm giving you, receive the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit come from? It's the Spirit of Jesus. And He now breathes on them, fills them with His Spirit. From then on and forevermore, I'm in you, I'm with you, I will guide you. It is My Spirit. You are filled up. And that was not Pentecost. Which is why what happened at Pentecost is another thing that you need to understand. There is the the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is a promise to all believers. Acts 2.38, Peter would say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God desires to walk with you and to fill you with His His presence, with His Spirit. So what, what happened on Pentecost? Well, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The power of the Spirit was given to them. You have the filling of presence and you have the coming upon of power. And these are two things. But the guarantee to you and to me, because he says it's for those who are here and for all far off, Peter says in Acts chapter 2. This promise is even for those who are far off, which is us. The filling of the Holy Spirit. Understand this. Pentecost was still 50 days later from this moment when Jesus said, Receive my Spirit. And Peter was filled by the Spirit of Christ. And more important, please don't miss this, because a lot of people elevate Acts chapter 2. And they say, that is, that's the deal. That's That's what we want more than anything else. That Holy Spirit power. You know what I want more than anything else? I want the Holy Spirit's presence. I need His power. I function far better when I function by His power. And I do things by His power. But I want His presence. I just want Him with me more than anything else. I think about the statement that Elihu made to Job. Elihu was uh, the one guy in Job, the one friend uh, of Job who wasn't an idiot. 
<laughs> the rest of the guys, they spew all kinds of stuff. Very confusing. They go after Job. Elihu comes along and he is speaking as from the Lord. He's a great picture of the Spirit of the Lord. Well, Elihu in Job 33 verse 2 says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And that's exactly what happened. Remember all the way back with Adam. The breath of God breathed into the created man brought him to life. In the same way, the breath of Jesus brings the presence of His Spirit and brings us into new life. And in this moment, when Jesus breathed on Peter and the rest of the guys, they were born again. They received new life. Peter would later write in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our hope. We talked about this last week. Receiving the resurrected Christ. Because when you receive the resurrected Christ, you receive transformation. You come alive. It's critical to understand that. Because His resurrection means my resurrection. And not just later on when I'm resurrected for eternity, but now as I'm resurrected to being born again into a new life. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... That is, you accept His authority, His Lordship over you, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. got to believe in that resurrection because it's the promise of yours and it brings you life. All that to say, any leader in the church must be filled by Jesus. you got to be found. you got to be filled, just as Peter was on that same day. That even after being found and filled, the old fisherman was calling him back to the sea. And of course, Peter headed out. Turn over to chapter 21 of John. In John 21, verse 3, we're told that Peter said, I'm going fishing. And I I don't want to read too much into it, but I kind of think maybe Peter was just either frustrated or confused. He didn't know what to do with the resurrected Christ. What do I do with Jesus? What do I do now? I mean, before we were with Him everywhere, following Him, and He was the rabbi, and we sat and He taught, and it was awesome. And now, what? What? I'm going fishing. Because fishing is what Peter knew. By the way, a lot of people do that. They come to Christ, they get saved, they have a changed life, and then they go back and go fishing. Because I don't know what else to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You ask the Lord. You find Jesus and say, what am I supposed to do now? And let him lead. Well, Peter wasn't doing that. He just said, I'm going fishing. And what's funny about John 21 is they fished all night long and caught nothing. I can almost see the hand of God in the Galilee moving the fish away from the boat. You, over there, get out. No, tilapia, that way. Go, you know. And they caught nothing at all. And at daybreak, as the story continues in John 21, at daybreak, suddenly there's a guy on the shore. And they don't know it's Jesus. They can't, either can't see Him or maybe it's foggy or He's obscured to them, but Jesus is on the shore and He calls out to them in verse 6 of John 21. Well, we'll go back to verse 5. Children, you do not have any fish, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> they answered Him and He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. Now, I am not a fisherman, but I can tell you that if you cast the net on the left side of the boat and you catch no fish, 
that casting the net on the right side of the boat is not going to do you any good. <laughs> Only a shepherd would say something like this. A guy who doesn't know fishing, you know, cast the net on the other side. And they're like, what? And what's remarkable is they do. <laughs> oh, maybe it's just the bad side. I don't know. Try over here. Amazing. And they can't haul the net in. And I wonder at what point in this scenario they started to realize how similar it was to the exact same event that happened three years before. Luke chapter 5, when Jesus called Peter and James and John. Same thing. All night fishing, caught nothing. He says, hey, throw the net over this side. Whatever. They do it. Boom. They cannot bring in the catch. It's too much fish. Pick it up in verse 9. So they got out on land. Oh, i got to tell you, you know what else happened, right? The second they pull on that net and try to get the fish in the boat, Peter goes, it's the Lord! And grabs his coat and jumps in. In fact, the Bible says, literally verse 7, he threw himself into the sea. This was an absolute, it's another Forrest Gump moment. It is, and he's swimming to shore as fast as he can. I'm convinced, I've told you before, the boat got there right when he did. Then dripping wet, Peter gets out of the water, looks over and says, that's my boat. You know, and then he... this is how Rick sees it. I'm probably wrong, but it says he he got out on the land, and verse nine they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus made breakfast, messianic breakfast. I love it. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153 Bible students. Why does the Bible tell us it's 153? Do you know? I love this. The Hebrew numeric, every Hebrew letter is also a number. And the Hebrew numeric for 153 spells out in the Hebrew, Ani Elohim. I am God. Pretty cool. I know it chills, right? I am God. 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not uh, torn. And so Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question Him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Note that in verse 13. Who's doing the serving? Jesus is. Wow. If it had been us there, would we have even allowed him? I, no, no, you sit down, Lord. We have a nice seat right here in the front, right by Becky, right there. Just be comfortable, and we'll. we'll and he's like, no, no, relax. I got it. He's passing around the bread and the fish and serving them. That there's your shepherd. And this is now the third time, verse fourteen, that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What is Jesus doing here? Read a little further. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I've told you before, love there is agapao, agape. Do you unconditionally love me? Jesus is asking. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter's word for love is phileo, which is Philadelphia, brotherly love. Do you unconditionally love me? You know I love you as a brother. It's like saying, hey man, do you love me? I love you, bro. (laughs) They're coming at it from two different places. He said to him, tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agapao. And he said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you like a brother. 
And he said, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And in verse 17, Jesus changes from agapao to phileo. He goes from unconditional to brotherly. He changes his word because it's as much as Peter has to give right now. Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? I think Peter was grieved because Jesus changed the word, by the way. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you like a brother, brotherly love. And he said to him, tend my sheep. Why did Peter not answer him, I love you unconditionally? Because Peter knew he hadn't. Because it was just, you know, weeks before that he had denied his Lord. He's still, that's why he went fishing again. He's still struggling with, who am I to even serve? Who am I to even be involved in this thing after what I did? I'm going fishing. And so Peter takes, Jesus takes Peter through this, this process. And what is Jesus doing in all of this? He is shepherding Peter. And notice what he said all three times. First time he said, tend my lambs. You love me? Tend my lambs. The word tend there is literally feed. Bosco (laughs) in the Greek. (laughs) Feed my lambs. Give them this lame chocolate drink. That's not what he's saying. Bosco, feed my young ones. (coughs) And by the way, that's the best thing that you can do for a brand new believer in Jesus is give them all the feeding you possibly can. Pile it on. People say, I don't know if I want to bring someone to the bridge on a Sunday morning because Rick teaches like almost an hour, sometimes more. And if they're a new believer, that's just going to knock them out. No, I don't think it will. I think it will fill them up. And not because it's me teaching. I don't think you can give someone enough Bible when they have just come to the Lord. And he said that, feed my lambs, my young ones. And then the second time, he says to him, if you love me, shepherd my sheep. Well, now the sheep are grown up. And he says, I need you to care for them. By the way, that word shepherd is Poyman, pastor, shepherd them, care for them, look out for them, watch out for them, protect them. They're my sheep. And then the third time he returns to tend, Bosco, feed my sheep. So you feed them when they first give their lives to Jesus and you just keep feeding them, Peter. You keep feeding them. Third transformative moment right here. Peter was fed. Peter was fed. He was found by the Lord on Resurrection Sunday. He was filled by the Spirit of the Lord on Resurrection Sunday. Still struggling. Ultimately, Peter is now fed by the Lord as Jesus says, come have breakfast with me. And he's always doing that. Jesus loves the fellowship of a good meal. Where do you get that, Rick? Almost every... I think there's one resurrection appearance where they're not eating. Every other one. They're breaking bread. They're having fish. They're chowing down. It's what Jesus does because it's it's warm and it's it's nurturing and it's family. And that's what He's about. Found, filled, fed. Any church leader must be continually fed by Jesus. Continually fed. Hungry for the Word. Side note, one of the things I look for in a shepherd are they there Wednesday night. And I know people are busy. I get that. I understand all of that. But someone who is hanging on every word of the Scriptures, someone who's in the Word constantly, who's hungry, who's feeding on it, that says something to me. you got to be fed. Peter was found. Peter was filled. Peter was fed by the hand of the chief shepherd himself. Did it work? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. That's the last place we're going to go. 1 Peter 5. Did the fisherman become the shepherd? 
Listen to what Peter writes. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to back up. Chapter 4, verse 17. He says, If it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He says, It is time. It is time for judgment to begin right here. And by the way, I would tell those of the non-Christian world who say, Why do you judge us? I would say, Actually, we judge ourselves. Judgment's right here. We discern. We are seeking righteousness. We are hoping that we might be holy. And we're looking one to another as brothers and sisters in Christ to help us. I say, you help me grow as a follower of Jesus. Judge my behavior. Not judgmentally, but judge it, discern it, and see if I'm walking with the Lord. If I'm not, man, you better tell me. I promise to tell you. (laughs) He says judgment begins here. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. We entrust our souls to Him. With that in mind, he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as your fellow elder, presbyteros, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Poimen among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now listen, he says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Did the fisherman become a shepherd? And I would say to you, absolutely. Yes, he did. I don't know if Peter ever went out fishing again, but I'll tell you, he spent an awful lot of time in Jerusalem with the church. Peter ended up in Rome for the sake of the church. Peter ended up, tradition tells us, crucified because he loved his Lord. And I believe there was a moment there, perhaps immediately after Peter's death, as Jesus received him, when Jesus could say, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter could say, yes, Lord. I love you. Agapao. Because he died a martyr for Jesus. Two questions and I'll finish. I think shepherd is the right attitude for a leader. I absolutely do. Because shepherd, again, it diminishes the importance of a leader to himself. And even to those around him. It's not a role of great importance. It's not of lording it over. It's of serving. And in fact, it's of serving the servants. And that's the way it should be. But what is the shepherd's responsibility to the flock? And I could probably do 12 weeks on this. We'll just give you a couple of things. The shepherd's responsibility to the flock. Understand that poimen, pastor, shepherd, doesn't deny presbyteros, elder. It doesn't deny episkopos, bishop or overseer. 
Because shepherds are to care for the flock, to be in and among the flock, but also to administrate things in the body and to manage things, to oversee things. It's, it's all part of the package. But the focus is, I believe, pastoral. And I get that because of what Peter said when faced with a situation in the first century church, Acts chapter 6, verse 4. He said, We will devote ourselves to choosing the right color to paint the new church building and to the cabinetry. That's what we're going to focus on. We are going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's pastoring, gang. That's what a shepherd does. Feeding the flock with the ministry of the Word. Praying for the flock with the care of the heart of a shepherd. That's the idea. He says that's our twofold uh, job description right there. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And that's the responsibility of shepherds in the church body. And I honestly think in the church at large, if we had more shepherds who simply prayed for the flock and ministered with the Word of God, we'd have far less church problems. It's when men take on things, responsibilities and self-importance, that we start to miss the calling of Jesus, which is a very humble, serving calling. Now at the bridge we have volunteer shepherds and we have paid shepherds. And sometimes people misunderstand that. They'll say, well, you have your shepherds and then you've got your staff, right? You and Les are are pastors, but you're not shepherds. No, we are shepherds. Because that's what a pastor is. Pastoral, shepherds, poimen, same word. So we have some who are paid and we have some who are not paid who volunteer. I hold those who volunteer in far higher regard because they're doing it on on their spare time. 1 Timothy 5.17, though, tells us the elders who rule well are considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Yes, I think it's fine for a pastor to get paid. Of course you do, Rick, because you're paid. (laughs) And for anyone who thinks, you know, Rick, you're just trying to get a raise here, check it out. i got to point this out to you. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. (laughs) Call me an ox, man. Beast of burden. We at the bridge have a lead shepherd. If you haven't been here long, we have a senior pastor. Yeah, that's me. I didn't want it. I didn't ask for it. But I was called to it. And I will stand on that. Because when this church started over a decade ago, God asked me, are you willing to do this? And from that point forward, and I am not telling you that I have an infallible right to stand before you and lead. I don't believe that. But I am telling you I have a trust that I have been given to guard. And this is it. 2 Timothy 1.13 Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to guard the trust of the church at Ephesus. I want you to teach the word. Sound doctrine. That's your job. You keep an eye on that church. That's your responsibility. And by the way, Timothy, you're accountable to God for that. And so I take that very seriously. But understand as a senior pastor that I have I have a tremendous amount of accountability. First of all, I'm accountable to the Lord. And that's a big deal. Because God doesn't let things slide. You see pastors fall from time to time. You say, how can that be? Because God doesn't let things slide. God brings things out that need bringing out. 
God deals with sin where there is sin. God deals with pride where there is pride. And I know that. And I'm accountable to Him. I'm also accountable to my fellow shepherds. And they hopefully, more than anyone else, save my wife, know my weaknesses and know my flaws and are praying for me. We are accountable one to another. And by the way, I'm accountable to you. And you have every right. And people have taken up this right. And I, I invite it. You have every right to bring stuff to me. You see me doing something you disagree with? You better tell me. You see me walking in a way that is not godly? You better tell me. As my brothers and sisters, because like Peter, there's a fourth thing that we see in him. It's found, filled, fed. He was flawed. He continued to make mistakes. Understand this, gang, that as a senior pastor, I have a responsibility first to the Lord, then to my fellow shepherds, then to the church body as a whole. I'm accountable all over the place. Some of you guys get to slide into church with sin hanging off everywhere and nobody knows. (laughs) That's not fair. Hopefully we're keeping an eye out for each other. And we're loving each other enough for judgment to begin at the household of God. And we walk together in honesty and in the light, accountable to each other, accountable to our fellow shepherds, accountable to the Lord. But understand also, that being said, we are not a democracy at the bridge. Some churches do it that way. Congregational voting. We don't do it that way. We don't. Hopefully, as our shepherds are praying, we have a sense of of where the body is. But it's not a democracy. We're not a representative republic. What does that mean? That means we're not like the United States of America where you find your representative, you get him voted in as an elder, and then you tell him what you want to have done so it gets done the way you want it to be done. It's not how it works. The Bible says that we are to submit to our leaders. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself on that one. Understand this. We are a flock. And I think that's the best designation for the church. We're a flock. All of us all together. And if you're not sure what that means, I invite you to come out to the Gilmore's property and sit and just watch the sheep for a day. Watch what they do. Watch where they go. Buck was their leader. Buck the horse. And we lost Buck last week. Yeah, 26, 26 years old. He even came to worship one Sunday morning. How many of you guys were here? Did you see that? It was wonderful. He walked right in the door. Hey, what's going on in here? Wilbur! You know? It's great. But those sheep, it was so funny. They would follow Buck around. Everywhere Buck went, that's where the sheep went. Buck's over there. Where's Buck? There he is. And they go over there. And the day after Buck died, he died out here on the field. And... They had to bury him. Rod buried him uh, right there where he fell because you don't move a horse that size. Where are you going to bury him? Right there. <laughs> so they, they buried him there, and there, there was a, a dry spot there on the ground where he's buried. I looked out my window, and I could see straight down out of the back of our house, down into the field, and all the sheep were lying on the grave. That's kind of a picture of us. You know, we keep going back every week to the place Jesus died, don't we? We take communion together, we remember His sacrifice, but we don't stay there. By the way, they didn't either. They moved on after a while. (laughs) Look at the sheep. We are a flock. 
And the idea can sound archaic, especially in a country, in a culture that touts the people's rights. We're big time onto our personal rights, aren't we? I have a right for things to be done my way. And I'm here to tell you in the church, no, you don't. And neither do I. We give it up. We have no rights. We are called to submit one to another. We're called, husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's the way a marriage works. It's not when one lords it over the other. And any of you guys are lording it over your wives, stop it. Submit. Wives, same thing. If you're pulling things on your husband, submit to that man. The shepherd's responsibility to the flock is to care, to guard, to guide. By the way, I, I need to mention this. In a culture that touts the people's rights, do you know what the biblical word for the people's rights is? Laodicea. Laodicea means the people's rights. Laodicea, the lukewarm dying church, the pathetic church of the Revelation chapter 3, means the people's rights. That's not the church that I want to be. So what is the responsibility of the flock then to the shepherds? Quickly, 1 Corinthians 16 Verse 15, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were among the first fruits of Achaia, and that they devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. He says, you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and who labors. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, he says, we request of you, brethren, at the Thessalonian church, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, and have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very very highly with love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. And then Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit. But my leaders are dorks. It's okay. (laughs) Jesus is not. My leaders are flawed. It's okay. God is not. My leaders could fail me. Yes, they could. But God never will. Jesus won't fail you. Even should every pastor, shepherd, elder, bishop in the world fail you, Jesus will not. So he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. God's Word, not not Rick's Word. What I'm presenting to you today is what I believe is the biblical model of leadership, and that is shepherding leading. Scripture relates, as I said before, that Peter was found, filled, and fed, and he was still flawed. You can see that, look it up on your own time in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul actually has to call out Peter for being an idiot, for backpedaling in his faith. Later on, in the growth of the church, Peter still is, you know, stumbles here and there. I know, I do. I have. I am so capable of big stumbles. Ask around. But don't forget, don't forget that Peter was accountable to the Lord his entire ministry, and so is every church leader and every shepherd. We are accountable to the Lord. And he doesn't let stuff slide. Remember Achan? He was the guy who when the, when the Israelites took Jericho... God said, take no spoil for yourselves. And Achan said, no spoil? If I just take a few things, bag them up, and bury them under my tent, who's it going to hurt? And the Israelites went out to fight the city of Ai and got routed because there was sin hidden in the camp. Why did they get routed? Because God brings the sin out. 
He doesn't let it rest. And if you ever worry about, oh, I don't know about my leaders, I don't know about what they're doing. Hey, listen, if, if there's wrong being done, God's not going to let it slide. He'll bring it out. So what are you saying, Rick? Blindly trust you? No, I'm saying openly trust the Lord. And follow your leaders, your shepherds, as they follow Christ. Don't follow them. Follow them as they follow Christ. And pray for your shepherds, who again, themselves happen to be sheep. Pray that we all together will follow the chief shepherd, Jesus. Who said in John 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become, listen, they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's the kingdom, gang. And in that millennial kingdom, there's not going to be all kinds of denominations and churches and divisions among Christians who are you know, struggling along to figure this out. What there will be is one flock with one shepherd, Jesus Christ. 